All right. Bob said, are you happy? I will be in about 30 minutes. There's like this certain amount of dread that comes on a person before they come up and speak, but I am actually excited to deliver the word. Um, this morning, I want us to take another look at three words that we say so often here. It's this trilogy of words that have been put together, and now you can probably hear them in your sleep. It's worship, connect, and serve. All right, but I want us to take an unorthodox look at worship, connect, and serve this morning. Is that okay? When I say the word, the word unorthodox, does that excite you? Does that scare you? <laughs> if my mother was here, she would be nervous. My wife is nervous. Some of you guys are like, oh, good. Who knows what he'll say? <laughs> so it is unorthodox. Um, so when I say the word unorthodox, uh, by definition, it means contrary to what is usual. Unorthodox means contrary to what is traditional. It just means um, it's different than the way you usually hear it. That's what unorthodox is. And so I wanted to like, not just give you Webster's definition, I wanted to like show you in some tangible way, what does it mean to be unorthodox? Like just, I really wanna get this before we dive into worship, connect, and serve from an unorthodox angle. And I thought, and I thought, and I thought, and my mind was taken back to 1984. Probably in all of human history, this was the greatest expression of unorthodoxy ever. I mean, Jesus himself probably waited for the day and longed for the day for this expression to be done so that preachers post-1984 could use it as the best way to express what unorthodoxy is. And so all of you, of course, already know what I'm talking about. Actually, no one knows what I'm talking about. <clears throat> but you will agree. I'm gonna show you a video clip of a training montage between the Karate Kid and Mr. Miyagi. This is, this is unorthodoxy at its finest. And uh, so just watch it again. Remember that unor unorthodoxy means contrary to what is usual, contrary to what is traditional. Check it out. Would you come back tomorrow? <laughs> and he does, and you would too, because though unorthodox, it worked. There's a goal whenever Pastor Michael or Pastor Des or Brent or one of our Sunday school teachers or whoever, Pastor Shaler, Pastor Brenda, whenever someone talks about worship, connect, and serve, the goal is to get us to worship, connect, and serve. And yet the words have been floating out there for a while, and I kind of wondered if maybe we should look at them from a different angle. So the goal is the same. The approach is a little different. And so some of my examples and my stories and stuff will clearly be uh, different. Uh, not, not bad, not, not even scary, just different. So... So to be clear, all we've heard before about Worship, Connect, and Serve, it's right, it's good, it's helpful. And I'm in full agreement of all of it. And I like it. You know why? Because I believe if we worship and we connect and we serve, I think we put ourselves in a position to be greater disciples of Jesus Christ for the glory of the Lord. And that I can get excited about. So worship, when I say what have you heard before, worship, we've been told, uh, some of what we've been told is uh, worship means showing up on a Sunday morning. I means showing up at prayer service on Sunday night. Connect, oh, it's easy, you just join a home group, then you'll be connecting. And then serve, of course, you just join Bethesda Cares once a month, maybe you volunteer in the nursery, helping the kids department, the youth department, the health fiesta's coming up, you serve in that, bam, we connected, we worshiped, we serve, we're good. All true, all helpful, uh, but today we'd look at it from a little different angle in hopes that we can expand our meaning of these words, okay? You guys with me? Am I boring you yet? Give me time. So I hope we will not replace 
what we've learned, but instead I hope we will just stretch our understanding of these three words in order to stimulate a fuller, broader, more robust uh, understanding of worship, connection, and service in our own lives. Again, so that we can be more faithful disciples of Christ. That's my goal. So let's look at the first word, which is worship. All right. Yes, I'm using huge pieces of paper. That is my style of choice. I like because I can see colors. I like because I, I just, they're bigger. I, I don't know why I do that, but I, that's what I like. So yes, that's what I'm doing here. All right, so worship. All right, so the orthodox view of worship, the usual view of worship means show up on a Sunday morning. It means show up on a Sunday night. It actually can also say, you know, hey, we're going to worship today, so we're going to raise our hands. We're going to sing songs. We're going to clap our hands. We're going to play an instrument. All these things are worship. They're right, and there's more, though. Um, even a casual reading of Romans 12.1 will show you that there's a little more to worship. And it goes like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Six months ago, I was invited to minister with a friend of mine in Poland. And uh, while we were there, we visited Auschwitz. Everybody familiar with Auschwitz? Terrible and amazing experience to go to Auschwitz. You know going in, this is not gonna be fun, and yet I need to go, I wanna go. It's a concentration camp, but it was not just a concentration camp, they labeled it a death camp as well. People came here to die. It wasn't just a work camp, they came here to die. Over 1.3 million people were murdered at Auschwitz. Over 1.1 million of those people were Jews. One of those 1.3 plus million was a man named Father Colby. Anybody ever heard of Father Colby? K-O-L-B-E? Yeah, Mary? Anybody else? Yeah, just a few, few people. I never heard of him. And yet, I want to tell you about him today because I think his story is worth telling. And I'm going to tell you a part of his story. Just, it's just amazing thing after amazing thing. But I want to tell you a little bit. And I want to show you Auschwitz as well so you can kind of get into the, uh, the, the story a little bit. So Father Colby was a good man. And he was a, he was a Catholic priest. He would have walked through these gates. I want you to see these gates. These are the gates that lead into Auschwitz. The sign that you see there basically says, hard work will set you free. It was a lie. I'm not saying hard work isn't good. I'm just saying that that was a lie. That was to make the people feel comfortable as they entered into this death camp, that they would work hard and get out. That was a lie. He would have, Father Colby would have been herded daily into these overpacked living quarters that you see there. Now you might think, well, that's just a building. Yeah, they put a lot of people in that, in that building. Father Colby uh, would have known what this wall was used for. Thousands and thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of times. There was a rule in the camp, if one escapes, 10 will die. That was the rule. And that kept people from trying to escape. Because why would you want to escape if it meant that 10 of your friends, brothers, family would die? And it largely worked and held the people uh, from escaping. But in late July of 1941, someone escaped. Several, many people escaped. Uh, not hundreds, but, but many people escaped over the years. But late July of 1941, someone escaped and, true to their word, 10 men were selected. 
And they, what, they, what were they selected for? They were selected to receive no food, no water, stay in a small cell until they died. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Will you be the last one that's chosen? Ten. One of the men, his name was Franciszczyk Gajownikczyk. He was a good man. <clears throat> he was actually in prison for helping the Polish resistance. And upon selection, he just broke and began weeping. My, my, my kids, my wife, what will they do? My kids, my wife, what will they do? And almost instantly, Father Colby stepped forward, took off his cap, and he said this, I am a Catholic priest. Let me take his place. I am old. He is young. He has a wife and children. Let me take his place. Now, the astounded, icy-faced Nazi commandant said, what does this Polish pig want? Didn't quite know if he heard him right. He says, what does he want? Father Colby again pointed to Franciszczyk and repeated, I am a Catholic priest from Poland. Let me take his place. The account was later told by both German soldiers and prisoners that they were all astonished that the, com the commandant agreed to the switch. So the exchange was made, Franciszczyk for Father Colby, life for life. And the 10 men were led to a small dark cell, no food, no water, no getting out alive. After a few days, half the men had died. After several more days, none but Father Colby remained. And the guards and the prisoners reported that those that saw him noticed and marveled that he never complained. In fact, he was heard encouraging the other prisoners, hey, they're going to find that guy. Maybe they'll let us out. Hey, you're going to make it. The Lord's with us. They said that he was always at peace. He was always calm. He was praying. He was singing songs. He was standing or kneeling. One German guard said, we've never seen a man like this before or since. After 14 days, August 14, 1941, Father Colby was killed at 12.30 in the afternoon. Lethal injection to which he offered his arm. 14 days, no food, no water, dark cell. That's not even possible, right? He's not coming in as, and under strong conditions either. I mean, the Lord is obviously with this man. They said for 14 days, the guards would walk by and some of the prisoners who had different responsibilities would walk by and they would look through the hole and they would see him in the middle of the cell, standing or kneeling, praying, singing, calm, radiant. Many people use the word radiant. Bruno Borgowick was assigned to render service to the starvation bunker. He said many things, including this, Father Colby, with a prayer on his lips, himself, himself gave his left arm to the executioner, unable to, watch, unable to watch this under the pretext of I've got work to be done, he, uh, he left. So immediately after the SS men had left, I returned to the cell, says Bruno, where I found Father Colby leaning in a sitting position against the back wall with his eyes open and his head drooping sideways, his face calm and radiant. That's how Father Colby died. I want to read Romans 12:1 again, and perhaps this time it will read with a, a little greater depth, maybe a little bit more urgency. Therefore, 
I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. We may never be required to sacrifice as Father Colby sacrificed for Franciscan, but Jesus, the Christ, sacrificed in an even greater manner for you and for me, did he not? Did he not say, essentially, I am the Son of God, let me take your place? The question today is not, did Jesus do that? The question today is, have you received that sacrifice? The question is never going to be for you, did it really happen? The question is, have you received it? Christ has done it. By the way, Franceschuk survived Auschwitz. The man who was spared, he survived Auschwitz. Not many did. And he lived to be 95 years old. And for 53 years after the war, he came back to Auschwitz on August 14th, year after year after year, without fail. And I think in a similar way, worship is a lot like this. But you don't show up once a year, or more suitably for a Sunday morning crowd, you don't show up once a week. It's every day. Worship is every day. It's every moment of every day. It may one day come to us giving our lives to die a martyr's death, but likely, more than likely, it's going to look like this. Worship is going to look this week, this day, like folding the clothes in a sweet way. Folding the clothes in a sweet way. It's going to look like this. Talking nicely to your family even after a hard day of work. It's going to worship, worship's going to look like this. It's going to be offering ourselves to God in all we do. And if something great like martyrdom expresses itself and, and is needed, then we'll step into that. But tonight, it's probably going to be folding the clothes in a sweet way. Talking nicely, even though you're tired. <laughs> Treating those around us with love and respect. Offering our entire lives to the Lord. That's our act of worship. And that's more than just showing up on a Sunday morning, right? That's even more than just singing a worship song, right? And yet all those things are still worship as well. So today, uh, I want us to look at differently at worship connect and serve. From an unorthodox angle, I hope to just push our boundaries out a little bit on the meaning of these words so that we can worship better. We can serve better. We can connect better. I think there's room to enlarge these areas. I think there's room to enlarge my worship. All right, second word. You ready for the second word? They're not all going to be about the Holocaust. They're not all going to be heavy. In fact, I'd left a lot of the details out of those stories because I knew we had kids in here today, and especially with the, the child dedications, I didn't want to give anybody nightmares. Speaking of the baby dedications, weren't they very, very well done? Thank you, Brenda. Beautiful kids. Love it, love it. All right, second word, connect. Two weeks ago, Pastor Michael implored us to connect. Do you remember that? Yep. He said, circles are better than rows, which I kind of agree with for the most part. But I was thinking, you know when you're at those banquets and like there's circle tables and you're the one that's like got their back to the speaker? <laughs> I was like, Michael, I'm not so sure 
Circles are better than rows because I'm trying to eat my cheesecake here and sip my coffee and yeah, I'm like, what? Hold on. And so you have to turn your chair around. You have to like kind of do that whole balancing thing where you've got like your saucer and, your t- and you're like, yeah, I think circles are not quite as good as rows in that scenario. Or what about the movie? Can you imagine me in a movie? What's that? What? Did he do it? Did he make it? What? what? Hey, is he going to? Uh, circles. Circles are better, but, uh, but, but then rows most of the time. All right. He told us last week that, uh, or two weeks ago that, that we should connect because two are better than one. All right? Two are better than one. Ecclesiastes 4 says if you fall down, two, a second person will help you get up. It says you can stay warmer. It says you can defend each other. Uh, two being better than one says that you can uh, get more work done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, we see the principle of two being better than one all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, Adam and Eve. God says it's not good for man to be alone, so he made Eve. Uh, David, and, uh, David and Jonathan. Best friends, they looked out for each other. Armor bearers, Saul had one, David had one, Jonathan had one, lots of people had them. Armor bearers were there to help, so two is clearly better than one. And uh, connecting with others allows you accountability and protection and advice and help and companionship, blah, 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 wonderful, wonderful. It works, it's fantastic. One can put 1,000 a flight, two can put 10,000 a flight. Is there any question that two is better than one? Ah, no, we, we buy it, we're, we're into it. Community is better than isolation. I'm in, I'm on that. It's all true. That's all orthodox, though. So now, let me take an unorthodox look at connection, at connecting. All right, there's a man in our church that before he was saved, many, 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 many years ago, he was a hustler. All right, now I realize there are various definitions of the word hustler. So I want to clarify right now, okay? Hustler meaning one uh, is, is one who hustles. Are we clear? All right, there's more. I'll read the rest if anybody else needs it. Especially somebody who pretends to be an amateur at a game in order to win bets. Now, are we clear what kind of hustler we're talking about? Pretends to be an amateur at a game in order to win bets. So he's a highly skilled, he's a trickster, uh, and he's after your money, okay? One day, this particular hustler took his pastor. Let's just call him Desmond. Desmond. And let, let's just call him Desmond Evans, okay? So this particular hustler takes his pastor, Desmond Evans, to a golf course, which the hustler had frequented often. I mean, this was his stomping grounds, and they were just going there to play a friendly round of golf. No gambling, okay? Coincidentally, however... Word of said hustler's salvation experience had not fully got out quite yet. Not everyone knew of this change in his life. And so therefore, when our newly redeemed hustler and his pastor, Des, stepped up to the first tee box, a shout billows in from afar, which surprised Pastor Des and embarrassed our former hustler. The shout goes like this, hey, Paul! Let's just call him Paul. Let's, let's just call him Paul Ward. Let, let's just point to him. He's in the fifth row right here, blue shirt, sitting next to Sherman Ward. Paul, why don't you stand up so if I can give you a hand. <laughs> Says, hey, Paul, who's your pigeon? Now, in those days, a pigeon was code for the one who's about to get hustled. 
Paul, Paul yells back, oh no, oh no, this isn't my pigeon, this is my pastor. <laughs> to which the man says, pigeon pastor, you call him what you want, all right? Okay, so Paul was a good hustler. Good being a relative term, okay? A, a good hustler. It's kind of like when you watch Ocean's Eleven and you're rooting for the bank robbers. You know what I'm talking about? You're, go bank robbers. Wait, should I be? Yes, go bank robbers. Okay. It's, you just got to, so, so he's a good hustler, Paul is. Former hustler. Now a great man of God. And my friend, Paul Ward. But as good as Paul was, he learned from a great hustler. Has anyone heard these stories before? You need to take out Paul to dinner. If you really want to hear the good stories, take him out to a steak dinner. (laughs) And he'll tell you some stories. Good stuff. So again, Paul's a good hustler, but he learned from a great hustler. Now again, what what word are we on right now? Connect, connect. Okay, there's point to this. Now, again, the, the great hustler is a bad guy. He's a cheat. He's a crook. Uh, you don't usually use guys like this in sermons to make your point. But remember, this is an unorthodox sermon, right? So just go with me. Wax on, wax off. If you, if you get to the point where you're like, what is he doing? He's making a mockery of the... Wax on, wax off. You'll be a good karate kid at the end, okay? We'll all worship, connect, and serve better. So this hustler's name is Alvin which is not a good hustler name. Good chipmunk name. Not a a good hustler name. In fact, not a good hustler name for a guy who will eventually hustle Al Capone. You heard of him? Alvin hustled Al Capone. All right, so this hustler's name is Alvin for a while. Long story short, that includes a pool table, a mattress, and $200. He gets a nickname, Titanic. Titanic Thompson is his name. So the hustler's name from here on will be Titanic Thompson. Paul, remember that guy? <laughs> he said he does. Did you beat him? Paul said he never beat Titanic. In fact, you played Titanic when he was 80 and you were like 26, right, in the game of golf? Something like that? I mean, you were in your prime and he was 80 and he somehow, because he's a hustler, beat Paul Ward. And Paul's a good golfer. All right, so let me tell you two Titanic stories. And uh, I want you to remember that we're taking an unorthodox look this morning at the word connect, worship, connect, and serve. First story is about horseshoes. I'm just going to read them because they're so well written. I read Titanic's uh, biography by one of the Sports Illustrated writers, Cook. I just want to read. They're not very long. I think they're, in, they're, they're quite fun. Uh, he heard of a horseshoe pitcher, Frank Jackson, who challenged anyone to play for any sum of money. Titanic didn't even play horseshoes, but how hard could it be, right? The shoe weighed about the same as a duck pin bowling ball. The underhand motion was similar. He drove to Des Moines, Iowa, Jackson's hometown, and built a horseshoe court in an alley behind his hotel, where he practiced with his usual focus, tossing the shoe thousands of times until it spun a perfect three-quarters of a turn in flight and clanked around the 10-inch stake at the far end of the alley, time after time after time. When schoolboys stopped by to watch, the lanky stranger, Alvin, said that he reckoned he could beat anybody alive. Not Frank Jackson, mister. 
He'll ring eight out of ten, a boy said. He's the world's champ. Frank who? Titanic knew who Frank was, but Frank who? Before long, Jackson came around. Muscular man whose right forearm was, was thicker than his left. He watched Ty, Titanic, he watched Ty throwing lefty ring one and miss one. Ring one and miss one. Jackson shook his head and uh, his head no when Ty offered to play him for 10 bucks. And this is 1920s, 30s, 40s. 10 bucks is a lot of money then, but it's not a lot of money. He shook his head no. I only throw for real money, he said. Oh, well, how about 20 bucks? Psh, Jackson turned to go. One of the boys piped up. He plays for thousands, for millions, which was all Ty wanted to hear. In a loud voice, he offered to play for $10,000. Every cent I've got in this world, right here, right now, unless Mr. Jackson's chicken. The local hero asked to see Ty's money. Ty produced a roll of hundreds that grew, that grew gasps from the boys. Did the champion suspect he was stepping into a trap? If so, his ego kept him from showing it. He rubbed dirt on his hands and told the stranger to fire when ready. No, 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 after you, sir. Ty said, offering the first throw as courtesy. Jackson leaned back, stepped forward, and lobbed a shoe that traced a lazy 10-foot high circle or arc, turning 270 degrees in flight and plopping into the sand a foot short of the stake. Hmm. Same thing happened to his next two tosses, while Ty, who had played a little possum when the boys watched him earlier, ringed three in a row. Jackson couldn't understand why he was so weak that day. He shook his head all the way to the Des Moines Bank at 3rd and Walnut Streets, where he would drew 100 $100 bills and handed them to the man he would never see again. After that, Jackson avoided the back alley court where the schoolboys flung horseshoes and apparently never learned that Ty had put the stakes 41 feet apart, a foot more than the regulation 40. Second story, this is about checkers. I just want you to get, I want you to, this whole, the whole book's just full of this, this, these, this trickster's stuff. Titanic was itching to get out of town. His Joplin profits were peanuts compared to the action in Kansas City where checkers king Locke Renfro dared any man to play him for $10,000. Ty hadn't played checkers since his days as Roger, at Rogers uh, Elementary School but he took up the challenge. He went to Kansas City and sat down across a checkerboard from Renfro, who thought the young man seemed nervous. With a small crowd peering over his shoulder, Titanic dithered over every single move. But to the champion's surprise, every move he made was the right move. Ty won so easily that the end game was obvious a half a dozen moves in advance. Yet still, he waffled teasing him, Renfro thought, dragging things out to embarrass him. Renfro stalked out of the room while Ty hesitated before making his final clinching move. The crowd applauded as Ty took a bow and said he owed it all to the man upstairs. Harry Lieberman, the U.S. champion he had brought from Detroit to watch the game through a peephole Ty had drilled into the ceiling Lieberman sat by a wire called a thumper that ran from his perch over the checkerboard to the basement, then up through a hole in the floor near Ty's shoe and up his pant leg 
The thumper's business end was taped to Ty's leg. When Titanic lifted a checker and hovered it over another square, Lieberman pressed a button that sent a spark through the thumper if he disliked the move. If he approved, he held the fire. He didn't push it. Thus, Ty's hesitance as he tested one checker move after another. That night, he gave Lieberman a train ticket home to Detroit and $5,000, his end of an even split of Renfro's $10,000. So, why do I read those? It's real simple. Regarding the horseshoes, remember we're taking an unorthodox view here. Regarding the horseshoes, the devil is not playing fair with you. He, he, 40, 41 foot, not 40. The devil is not playing for, fair. And regarding the checkers, the devil is not alone. He's using demons, other people, circumstances. Even our flesh is tempted to agree with him often. Michael says two's better than one. Are they? Yes. Yes, connection is better than isolation. But also, you should connect so that you don't get hustled, you don't get tricked, you don't get fooled. He ain't alone, and neither should you be. He ain't alone, and neither should you be. If you have not connected, you're alone. You're walking to this alone. You're at a disadvantage. You have no idea that the stakes are a foot further. You have no idea that there's someone sending signals from above. You have no idea. And yet when we have people around us, it helps us uh, to catch some of the tricks of the enemy. All right, third word. Anybody glad it's the third word? <laughs> The usual, traditional, orthodox teaching concerning the word serves are true, they're right, they're good. Uh, usually we hear that we're supposed to volunteer in the nursery, and for goodness sake, we need some volunteers in the nursery. I'm not kidding. That's, on, that's in my department. We need some volunteers in the nursery. We have got so many kids, so many preschool kids coming to church. It's amazing because there's so many of you guys. But it's, it's just amazing. Should you volunteer in the nursery? Yes. Should you help the kids in youth programs? Yes. Should you become a greeter and an usher? We need those. Yes. Should you wax and vacuum my car? We, yes. Yes. All of these are yes. All that service, but I want to simply expand our understanding of the word service in hopes that we can serve with greater effect, or I want to remind you seasoned believers who are already serving so well to keep on doing it. Uh, you're doing well. Let's look at the, the first two kings of Israel. Who are they? First two kings of Israel, Old Testament. Saul and David. All right, check this out. These are kings, all right? I'm not going to tell you about their riches and about their honors and their accolades and their strengths and their talents. I instead want to just quickly draw your attention to what they were doing right before they broke out on the national scene. I want you to look at what they were doing right before they became relevant. I want you to check out what they were doing right before they went viral, right before they started trending. Look what they're doing, okay? Samuel Chapter 9, 3 through 8. Just listen. You don't have to turn. Just listen. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. Do you see that take one part? Take one. Don't go alone. Get connected. Get connected. And uh, take somebody with you. All right. Take one of the servants with you. And go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. 
They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant, who was with him? Come, let's go back, or my father's going to stop thinking about the donkeys. He's going to start worrying about us. But the servant replied, look, 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 look. In this town, there is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way the donkeys took. Saul said to his servant, if we go, what can we give this man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again, oh, look, look. I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man so that he will tell us what way to take. So what was Saul doing right before he became king? Looking for donkeys. Impressive. That's impressive. Looking for donkeys, right? That is a medial task. That is on par with my first several jobs. I graduated from mowing yards and cleaning gutters to working at the Golden Corral as a, as a waiter. Okay, it's a busboy. Glorified busboy. And then I graduated delivering pizzas. And uh, then I, uh, I moved on back to waiting tables at the Golden Corral. And then I just kept going. But what's interesting is, in these medial tasks, the Lord was up to things. He was teaching me things. He was doing things. And so Saul, what was he doing? He was looking for donkeys. He was looking for donkeys. I know in a room this big, there are people sitting here thinking, what am I doing here? Not here, but like in life. Like what? Well, actually, there are people saying, what am I still doing here? I have given this guy way too much time. I should have left it unorthodox. What am I doing? I thought I would have been further than this, in this at this time of my life. I thought I would have been past this. I thought I, the, the door would have opened. My ship would have come in. I mean, I, I, what am I doing here? Why am I still in this place? What's... Saul was looking for donkeys. Medial task. But you know what? When he was doing it, he met Samuel. The Lord orchestrated his steps. He met Samuel. And then bada bing, bada boom, he's the king of Israel. Interesting. What's the point? I think you got the point. What's the point about service? Don't serve later when you're more influential. Don't serve later when you've got things a little bit more. Serve now. You serve now. Serving is critical. Serving is mandatory. It is not frivolous, and it is not optional. You serve now. Well, Josh, are you saying if I serve, I'll become king? Are you saying if I serve, I'll become president? Hey, I'm, I'm up for another option if anybody wants to start serving. <laughs> Not so overly thrilled with my choices. So, yeah, maybe so, if it's not too late in the process. Uh, no, I'm not saying you'll be king, but I'm actually, I'm, but maybe, but maybe. I mean, the Lord does exalt the humble, does he not? The Lord does uh, give the faithful, those that are faithful with a little, does he not give more to those that have been faithful with little? He trusts them with more? So, yeah, maybe. I'm not saying you will be king, but maybe. I'm saying that the, what I am saying, though, is the first king of Israel was just looking for donkeys. That's what he was doing. Let's not kid ourselves. He was looking for donkeys, okay? But he found a kingdom. He was looking for a donkey, and he found a kingdom. Amazing. I wonder what is about to happen in your life. I wonder it's about to, well, you know what? Maybe you serve. Maybe you fa you're faithful in your service, and that may be what the Lord is going to springboard out of 
to, to, as you take that next step in your own life. Later in 1 Samuel 17, don't turn, David, the second king of Israel, is delivering bread and cheese when he arrives at the scene to find an uncircumcised Philistine taunting his people and his God, and we know what happens next. He kills that guy. He kills Goliath on his way to his destiny. If, if Saul was looking for donkeys and found a kingdom, David was delivering cheese and he received a kingdom. It's medial, it's little, it matters. Keep serving, looking for donkeys, delivering cheeses. This is the epitome of the mundane. This is the epitome of the mundane, but we do not despise the mundane as believers, right? We do not despise small beginnings because Christ in all of his transcendent glory laid down the supramundane and came to this world, came to this earth as a man, but not even just a man, a baby, not to be served, but to serve. And because he is our example, we must serve too. Not later, but now. And don't be surprised if service unlocks your next door. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't, we still serve. We still serve. What if God were moved by service? What if God noticed service? What if God took service seriously? And what if we're not serving? I just wonder if there might be some repercussions for that. Good news, though. We've got some donkeys here in the preschool and kids department. <laughs> and I'm not talking about my kids. I'm talking about there's a chore to do. And Bethesda Cares and the Health Fiesta, they're moving some serious cheese in a couple of weeks. I could use some help delivering some of that cheese. Worship, connect, serve. I'm done in 60 seconds, okay? You've bared with me. Thank you for tolerating such an unorthodox message today. If this is your first time, please come back. <laughs> Pastor Dan preaches, okay? Pa Pastor Josh does his best. 60 seconds, I'm done. I want us to worship in all of the orthodox ways, plus with our very lives. Our worship can grow, okay? I hope it'll grow. I want us to connect because the devil is not trying to hustle you out of your spending money. The devil is trying to kill you and destroy you. We can do a better job at connecting and we are better together. And I want us to serve, both now and effectively. For, the, for, for, for others' sake, but for God's sake, for your sake, serve. Worship, connect, serve. Why don't we bow our heads? I pray we expand the reach and meaning of these three simple words May they be fuller and broader and more robust than ever before. May we, Bethesda, grow in our worship. May we improve in our connection, our connecting. May we upgrade our service. And may we do it for the glory of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.